2: This podcast is part of the Darkness
1: Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Well, here we are again. The warning at the beginning of the show. I'm getting a little tired of having to warn you people. I mean, the name of the show is The Wicked Library, for God's sakes. It's not The Sweet Pickles Library. Listener discretion is advised. If you're scared easily, good. <laughs> Seriously, though, bugger off if you can't take scary stuff. We're very scary here. Boom. <laughs>
0: so excited to see what you've done, Uncle. Christmas can be a fun time of year. The presents, the cozy fire, yummy things to
1: eat. (laughs) I love it. I'm delighted you're here, child. I've done my best to capture the spirits of the season for you.
0: Ah, yes, Uncle. They don't seem to like being inside that jar. It's spirit of the season, as in the mood or atmosphere. Not actual spirits.
1: Ah, well. All right, then. Out with you, Mr. Molly, Mr. Present, Mr. Past. Ms. Yet to Come. Call me. (laughs) She's rather my type. If things work out, I might just end up changing her name. (laughs) Come along,
0: Uncle. You were going to show me the decorations.
1: Yes, I followed all the instructions. Instructions? Deck the halls with bowels of holly Fa la 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 la-la-la-la
0: No, Uncle! The Not the bowels of holly! The boughs of holly! The bush with little green leaves, small white flowers, and red berries! This is... this is just awful! I don't mind.
2: I was, I was already dead. I figured if I could help. Well,
1: thank you, dear. Gather yourself up. I'll see you at the party next week. I'm sure I did better on the next one. See the blazing fool before us. Fa la 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 la. Strike the harpy and join the. Oh,
0: Uncle, no. Not a blazing fool. A blazing yule! A log! Who's the poor man on fire?
1: I'm not sure I remember. Someone unimportant. It was relatively dark when I grabbed him. Should I put him out?
0: That really would be the best, Uncle.
1: Oh dear. Seems that was gasoline. Oh well. All right. The final room. I'm sure I've done this properly. Fast away the old elf passes. Help! 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 I found this leaf hiding in my chimney. La 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 la. Hail the new ye lads and lasses, fa-la-la-la-la, la-la-la-la, sing we joyous all together, fa la 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 headless and bound in leather, fa la 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 la
0: Oh, Uncle, I'm afraid none of that is right.
1: Hmm... Oh, well. Merry Christmas anyway, my girl. I'm afraid I'm much better at stories than decorating. Shall we have some of those instead?
0: Oh, yes, please.
1: Well, all right, then. It's time for the Wicked Library's christmas massacre episode. <laughs> I Want to Eat Your Eyes by Jesse J. Saxon
2: Adam stood in front of the TSA checkpoint in LAX, waiting for Anna to appear from behind the holiday madness that was Incoming Flights for Christmas. In one hand he held a sign bearing her name, and a modest bouquet of flowers in the other hand trying to come off as an adorable chauffeur in their first face-to-face meeting since falling in love online. They had connected through Match.com four months ago and had been in daily communication since Anna's first winky face message in Adam's inbox. She was his ideal match, brunette, brown eyes, attractive, and her wit often surpassed his. She had told him that he was very much her ideal as well. She complimented him regularly and gave him his due respect when she found his jokes funny. They hit it off early, and the connection that they developed only grew with each passing day, so it seemed like a great idea to use the holiday as a great time to finally meet in person. She had told him that Christmas would be the only upcoming time that she would have off of work. Her profile had her occupation listed as a teacher, so that made sense to Adam and he agreed that the week of Christmas would be perfect for them to get together as long as she was okay with having Christmas dinner with his parents. She agreed and told him that she would be thrilled to meet them. He had enough vacation time saved up when they initially started planning the visit two months ago and had no trouble securing the time off himself. She would be flying into Los Angeles from Philadelphia. They often remarked about how their love could have only been found online since neither of them would otherwise have any business in either city. But they were grateful for finding each other and didn't really care about what the method was. Let's lie and say we met at, would usually be a normal, part of their conversations. That would often spark conversation topics about their fictional love lives together. Either Anna or Adam would lead off the topic joking about a phone meeting in a store at the mall when Anna was in LA on business. The other would respond with how they were attracted to the other based on some silly aspect of their person, like their shoes or watch. It grew into a way of telling each other things that they looked for in a potential relationship candidate without coming off as rude. They had exchanged Instagram accounts. Anna would often post pictures and videos of her working out. Adam made sure he liked all of them and remarked about what great shape she was in. Anna made sure she would respond to his comments and make him feel special among her various admirers. Adam would tag her in memes throughout the day just to let her know that he was thinking about her. By all accounts, they were growing a very normal relationship and showed all the telltale signs of a blossoming love. The weeks passed, and the day of her arrival had finally come. Adam waited patiently in the airport. He kept his eyes peeled for the gorgeous dark-haired girl from the East Coast that he was madly in love with. He was looking for her red and blue plaid coat that he had seen her wearing in the Snapchat picture she had sent to him earlier that day as she was boarding her connecting flight in Chicago. With each passing massive crowd, Adam held up the sign and flowers, doing his best to keep a smile on his face despite having to begin to fake it during the last two crowds. But then, finally... He saw the flash of red and blue. Then there she was. He didn't have to fake the smile then. Neither did she. They were both happy to see each other. She raced toward him, and he welcomed her with an embrace that could be a scene in any of the seasonal Hallmark movies that they had planned on watching together during their week together. He held her for a long time. He smelled her hair, felt her holding him back with the same intensity, squeezing his arms and shoulders. Instinctively, he began kissing her cheeks through his smiles. She didn't let it go on long before she turned her head slightly to offer her full lips to his. The interaction took only minutes, but the time seemed to have stopped altogether for them. It was simple, beautiful, and perfect. He held her hand as they exited the airport and put her bags in the trunk of his car. He held the car door open for her and kissed her again as she buckled the seatbelt. She devilishly smiled at him as he pulled away. He noted how it perfectly fit the personality he'd attributed to her in his head all the months they had communicated with each other through the phones. As they drove to his apartment, she held his hand and caressed it lovingly. They talked about her flight, the people that she sat next to, and how she was careful not to talk to any of them because, as she put it, They were all so gross and clearly wanted in my pants. Adam played it cool, but Anna quickly reassured him that he was the only one going to see the inside of these guts, she said laughing. The week went on like that, and the couple began kissing, hugging, cuddling, fucking, joking, laughing, watching Hallmark movies, and being totally into each other. He took her around town, showing her all of the sights and eating at some of his favorite spots. Can't get Chinese like this in Philly, he said holding up pieces of shredded pork in his chopsticks. They went shopping, and Anna would jokingly remark how L.A. didn't feel like Christmas with the balmy temperatures while poking fun at the mall Santa in his fake snow. After a few days, it had felt as if they'd been a couple for years. Then, on Christmas morning, Adam had asked Anna if she was ready for dinner at his parents' home later that day. She enthusiastically said that she was, as she laid on her back, kicking her feet up in the air while admiring her new pair of fuzzy slippers that Adam had gifted to her just moments before. "'My mom is a great cook,' he said. "'I bet I'm better,' she replied. "'That's something I'd like to see,' he said. "'Careful what you wish for, little boy. (laughs) I might just eat those blue eyes,' she said." Two days later, a VHS tape marked on its outer edge with I've done this twice before arrived at the LAPD headquarters in a USPS overnight envelope postmarked from Chicago. The intake officer had quickly routed it to the Homicide Division after watching its contents. The video opened up zoomed in on a single candle flame as Bing Crosby's Mele Kalikimaka played his background music. The camera shot slowly started to pull back, showing a fully-dressed table with holiday food beautifully plated. The camera shot continued to slowly pull away, until the optical zoom on the lens had retracted completely, showing the full point of view of the camera operator, and Adam and his parents gruesomely mutilated in their chairs. As the camera shot rested, it became clear that the plated food wasn't cooked and, in fact, bloody raw meat resembling the butchered cuts taken from the corpses of Adam and his family. From the side of the camera, a pair of two fingers began to dance into the frame to the beat of music, with two blue eyes affixed to their tips. They quickly disappeared, just as a naked female wearing only a black ski mask walked into the center of the shot, just behind the slaughtered carcasses. She held up the two fingers and sucked the eyes off of them, like they were olives. She was only in frame for that moment, before throwing a chunk of unidentifiable meat, knocking over the candle, and finally, the camera. Later that evening, the fire department responded to a house fire call. There were no survivors. Official report listed the victims must have passed out drunk with dinner. With one of them knocking over a lit candle. Hey, where do you think you're going? There's more
1: stories here at the Wicked Library. Stick around, or we'll turn the lights off for good. <laughs> One from a new friend from the UK, Arthur Pippa Bailey. <laughs> oh, Christmas tree!
2: Run! Julie screamed. She dodged the swinging branches and slammed into a deep bank of snow. A wave of frozen white engulfed her as it collapsed. Bitter cold seeped through her jeans and hoodie. She lay still and held her breath, gloved hands pressed tight against chapped lips. Footsteps thundered past her, firing crystal spears from the pine spindles overhead. She winced, body tense. Ice javelins pierced the encircling slush. A lucky escape. Thunderous footsteps were deadened by fresh snow, no longer able to hear their pounding on frozen ground. Her lungs screamed for oxygen. Whoosh, she released the stale air in a hot cloud that hung to tiny hairs on her face. She needed out of this woodland maze. Derek, her workaholic husband, had decided that this was the year they would cut down their own Christmas tree. After a few unhappy online hunts for local venues, he had decided to take the matter into his own hands dragging Julie and the kids along. She was less than impressed, but let him have his moment. He'd been watching Bear Grylls' adventures on TV recently, and she decided that this was at least better than him copying the piss drinking. She didn't see which way Derek ran when the creature hurled towards them the second time. From the first axe swing, the energy of the forest changed. Shifted like a shadow bore down on the frostbitten pines. It blotted out the winter sun and quelled all sound, save the blow of blade on wood. She knew it was too late for their children. With a single blow, it had swept them from their mother's side, their bodies like ragdolls that spewed blood upon impact with thick branches. They tumbled against rough bark, smashing through waves of white and green, Barbs of wood found soft skin, tore at bare flesh, flayed those children alive. Clouds of red filled the air. Chunks like confetti exploded, showering the surroundings in a thick slather of pungent gore. Their bodies crumpled to the ground. Roots snaked, clawed at them, claimed them for their own. Children reunited with the earth. The trees in this forest didn't like to be touched. Didn't like to be cut. She tried to warn Derek about the damaged sign on the roadside. Private property. Tress. Be felled. Half the sign obscured by snow. Derek, assuming it was practically an invite to take his pick, dumped the car and dragged the four of them down the winding path into the forest. Julie knew better now. Trespassers will be felled. Tear stains had scorched crimson lines on her frozen skin. She pulled herself from the snowbank and padded towards Path, desperate to find Derek to get out of there. She walked a short way, dodging between hunched trees. Each twig crack made her shudder. She couldn't tell which way she'd run, Turned around when she'd hit the snowbank. Footprints. That was it. She could follow the footprints. Her size six prints were easy to spot amid snow-covered detritus. But where were Derek's? He'd run in this direction, she was sure of it. Backwards indentations turned from crisp white to pink. Bloodstained. Still, no Derek. She found bloody remnants, gouges in the ice that surrounded the roots... Tufts of blonde hair peeked from below, their bodies now entwined with the forest. Hot, sour vomit splattered on the ground, frozen in place. She heaved again, leant against the tree, and wept. Dark air hung low amid the trees, the sun a soft pink glow through the murk. She couldn't bear to leave them again. Pulling off a glove, she stroked the wisp of blonde. Like a vacuum, they too were sucked beneath the ground. Nothing left. She collapsed to her sod knees. Judders of dry sobs racked her body. Julie. A voice called in the distance. She turned her head to the source of the voice. It was becoming too dark to see through the trees. Derek, she shouted, stifling the call with a glove for fear of disturbing the creature again. Over here, he said, running towards her. Julie spun around, unsure of his direction. Strong arms scooped her from the ground, held her close, his warmth the only thing she could feel. We need to get out of here, he whispered, warm lips pressed against her ear. I can't leave. They're gone, baby. There's nothing we can do. But the trees. I know, I know. I need you to stay quiet, okay? She nodded solemnly, biting down on her gloved fist. She let him lead her from the tangled grave. I can't do this. Yes, you can. You have to. He grabbed her tight around the waist and pulled her between bowing trees. Crunch. Something shifted behind them. Fallen branches snapped and creaked. Shadowed mist hid its master, but she knew that sound. Boom! Another footstep echoed in the distance. Somehow, it had heard them. Fear stole her strength. She slumped against his chest. Hands dropped from her waist, looped her arm and almost yanked it from the socket. She yelped. Boom! It was speeding up. They ran, zigzagging through trees. Her eyes bounced in their sockets. She tried to focus on the direction but could see nothing through the thick black. The ground shuddered beneath them, torn asunder by the creature that chased them. "'We're close!' Derek shouted, pointing ahead to a clearing. His car's yellow pierced the mist. She nodded, heart screaming in her ears. A knotted root coiled out in front of her, tripping them both. Sprawled on the ground, she kicked at the earth pushing herself backwards to the forest edge. To freedom. Derek didn't move. A trickle of blood slithered from a gash above his eye, droplets resting on his brow. Derek, get up! Nothing. Boom. It had reached them. She scrambled to her feet. Snow rained from shaken branches. A thick blanket coated his body. Blood seeped from the wound. One great dead hand reached for him, a gnarled twist of sticks. They bunched around his body, encasing him. No! She stumbled toward the creature that crumpled his body between its spindly wooden hands. It ignored her pleas. Hands squeezed tighter. Pop. Snap. She heard his body break. There was no scream, no howl of pain. Maybe he was dead before the creature scooped him up. She bellowed at it. It wrung its hands and peeled them apart like shelling a pistachio. A mass of crushed bone spikes hung from mutilated flesh. It swirled its fingertips about the bloody remnants extracting a length of sodden bowel. With a flick of its hand, it coiled the hulk of intestines around its tree-like body spiraling upward through branches that littered its chest. Next were the organs. It slipped a pointed finger into the soft flesh and dangled the offal from tips of spines that stuck out at odd angles. His slivers of bone, like scattering of ornaments, were sprinkled about its needled torso. Julie's slack jaw quivered breath caught in her throat at the sight of this tree-beast adorning its body with the remnants of Derrick's. She couldn't process what she was seeing. A tendril of drool slopped from her mouth down the front of her bloody torn hoodie. The skin came last. Shredded flaps stuck to its hands. It yanked the skin free and raised it high above its featureless face spreading the layer flat before pinning it between two protruding sticks like a winged angel. It shuffled in place, the ground beneath its feet splitting. It sank, planting itself this newly decorated Christmas tree. Her heart gave out. She would be fodder, a feast for the worms. Looked upon by the tree who felled man.
0: How many choices do you make in a day? In a year? In a lifetime? How many really matter in the end? Do you agonize over the small ones and avoid the important ones? Here on my lift In this place where all things are possible, your choice matters. Your choices require sacrifice. Will you make the right one? Choose to listen to The Lift in iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher and now iHeartRadio.
1: Well, kiddies, we're moving right along, aren't we, for this Christmas? Now we hear from something that could even give the Krampus a run for his money. <laughs> Here's one from our friend Kelly Perkins. the Yolaka your
2: luck turnin <laughs> Watching those girls dance in their little Santa outfits, kicking their legs high, really put Oliver in the Christmas spirit. It didn't matter that their exposed breasts were probably plastic, and there was no telling him Monty Python's The Meaning of Life wasn't a Christmas movie. After all, in heaven, every single day is Christmas Day. Oliver was just about to put on his most favorite Christmas movie, Monty Python's The Life of Brian, when his phone rang. He immediately recognized his grandmother's number and picked up. She said, "'Gyo le Alma. Isn't it late there?' He stole a glance at the classic black Kit Kat clock on his wall, its large feline eyes and jaunty tail ticking back and forth with the seconds. Iceland was only four hours ahead, but it was eight o'clock where he sat in his easy chair. "'I wanted to make sure I was the first to wish Happy Christmas to my favorite grandson.' Oliver laughed. <laughs> "'I'm your only grandson, Alma, but thank you!' Oliver looked back at his kitchen counter, where the knitted nightmare would normally lay neatly folded in its box, had it arrived. In its place lay the car keys he had deposited there the day before. "'Yes, Ama, I got it today. It's beautiful, thank you.' "'Oh, good.
0: I was worried it wouldn't make it in time. Wouldn't want your locker turning to get
2: you?' "'Ama, I'm twenty-three, plus this is America.' There is no Yule cat here. In the old days, workers toiled processing the autumn wool in time so that the families might be rewarded with such a boon as that matter. And for those who was not incentive enough, it was the fear of the Yulaka turn that drove them, for they would not see the children sacrificed on the altar of the laziness. It sounds like a way to get people to work harder, faster. She sounded indignant, and rightfully so. <sighs> I'm sorry, Alma. I didn't mean to sound disrespectful.
0: That's all right. I just hate to see the old traditions die. It leaves us unvaried, and the old spirits
2: hungry. Well, I haven't forgotten the old traditions. I. There was a loud thump toward the back of the house, possibly from the porch, and it made Oliver jump. Oliver, everything all right, dear? I just thought I heard something. Must be the neighbor's cat. Oh, I thought maybe it was the Huelands. Oliver let out another laugh. Amma. <laughs> he sounded almost as though he were scolding her, all in good humor, of course. Listen, I love you. I miss you. I'll call you tomorrow. Promise? I promise. All right. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas, Alma. And, as if politely waiting for his call to finish, he heard the thump again, loud and clear against his back door. Just like last night, and the night before, and the night before that, Oliver sighed and hauled his ass from his all-too-cozy seat. He was still wearing yesterday's PJs and didn't see much purpose in changing them now. He stepped into his slippers and trudged down the hall toward the back door, grabbing a hoodie off the wall hook on the way. He pulled it on and disengaged the locks from his door quietly, pulling the door open nice and easy. There, on the back step, just like the prior night and the one before that, and on for almost a solid two weeks now, was a single rotten potato. The tinkle of gnomish laughter rang in the frigid air, bringing Oliver's glacial blue eyes up and around the perimeter of his small yard. Was that a bush rustling, or only the icy wind brushing its wintry fingers through the foliage? Very funny, he announced to whatever neighborhood kids might be tormenting him. He got it. He was the weird foreign guy, his accent and tall, lanky frame the object of many a girl's crush, and thus the bane of the neighborhood boys who lusted after them. They made up stories, no doubt, about strudel and Swedish fish, and he was used to it by now. At least some of them got the Icelandic legend right about the little troll men who left rotten vegetables for naughty boys and girls, although he couldn't pinpoint exactly what they thought he did wrong, if anything. Oliver closed the door, leaving the offending tuber on the porch and returned to his easy chair. The three wise men were grabbing the presents back from Brian's mother in order to give them to the real messiah when Oliver felt a rumble throughout his humble abode. He paused the movie eyes and heads swiveling while he tried to determine the origin of the sound that seemed to be its source. Way too close to be a helicopter or a plane. What wasn't it? Based on the vibration alone, it almost certainly had to be mechanical. But it was almost nine o'clock on a quiet neighborhood street. On Christmas Eve, no less. What manner of construction or street cleaning equipment would be running at this time? There was a rolling, rhythmic nature to the sound. Almost... As if the object breathed w- was alive. The back of Oliver's neck prickled, hot with the sensation of eyes on him. He tentatively turned back to find, indeed, there had been one eye on him, huge, green, and feline, filling his kitchen window. He caught a scream in his throat, strangling and leaving it there to die. These neighborhood kids had gone too far this time and he wouldn't give them the satisfaction, although he had to applaud their ingenuity. It was so lifelike, the expansion of the vertical pupil as it focused on him through the glass pane. And then it clicked what he was hearing. The purr of an oversized cat. The eye retreated, a furry black feline muzzle with it. Somehow... Oliver didn't feel relieved, for which he was promptly rewarded by the shuffle and scrape of two giant paws against the side of his house. Kitty wanted in. Dishes crashed out of the cupboards, forgotten dust clouding the air. He was hesitant to imagine what this was doing to the outside. Oliver was starting to imagine how he might explain it to his landlord when he heard that signature thump at the back door, only louder and again, and again, until it was a cacophony of knocks and thumps. The back door flew open to the tinkle of bells and impish laughter, the persistent pawing of what could only be the Yalaka turnin', giving way to the patter of tiny troll feet. The Yule Lads piled in down the hall and into the kitchen where he stood and all he could think about was how the one with the peg legs was scratching up his floor. Priorities, man. Like how the shabby miniature storefront Santas were grabbing at his ankle, pulling him down to their level and dragging him towards the back door. The pawing stopped, replaced by an almost soothing rumbles, which kept pace with them alongside the exterior. No! he cried, doing some clawing and scraping of his own on the floor. He didn't mind marking it up so much now, especially as he drew nearer the cloying, stinking air flooding his mudroom. If the feline's uncanny size was multiplied by a hundred, so was the death breath wafting from its mouth, which stood open just beyond the threshold. On account! One of the lads called in his native tongue, and Oliver felt his body sway forward and back. And then they chanted together, <laughs> Oliver saw the hollow of the Yolaka Turn's cavernous maw grow larger, felt the hot miasma of its breath begin to envelop him. But his fingers found purchase on the door jamb, and with one single last ditch push, he was able to thrust himself back inside the hall, bowling over the Yule lads in the process. In a flurry of kicks and slaps, he escaped their clawing hands. Yolakar turned and let out a growl and a hiss that shook the whole house from floor to roof, saliva splattering the walls and the fallen Yola Slivenish, too, as he fled them. If he could just get his car keys, he could go out to the front and get the hell out of here. He could hear the tinkle of bells and boots on the floor, old peg leg thumping and scraping behind him. Oliver scrambled to the front of the house, palming the car keys off the counter as he slipped and stumbled to the front door. The cold nipping at his toes was no match for the jaws that awaited him out back, but that wasn't what stopped him dead in his tracks. On the porch sat a brown box with an Icelandic return address. Oliver smiled, furiously ripping at the box with fingernails and keys. Just as the mammoth cat rounded the house, still spitting and hissing, Oliver produced his grandmother's latest masterpiece of blue and white dyed wool and love. The feline's fury left him, and with a gentle trill he rubbed against the house as if it were the leg of a loved one. Yolakur Turnin raised a mighty paw and batted the sweater out of Oliver's hands, sending it flying into a snowdrift. The fearsome feline pounced after it like a ball of yarn, the Yule Lads in jingling pursuit. Oliver watched their figures fade into shadow. No evidence they'd ever been, except for the broken dishes, the gouges inside and no doubt outside of his house, and the chilling, teeth-chattering lack of a sweater.
1: Where do you think you're going? There's more story to come. <laughs> Don't you want us to keep the lights on? <laughs> and now, kiddies. Here's one from a new friend of ours as well. You've heard her work before, and you're going to really like this one, I think. (laughs) The Year Christmas Came to Madison Bear by Aaron
2: Vleck. (laughs) Time was when family meant something. Back when I was just a tyke, Ma and Daddy worked our small dirt farm in the Nebraska Territory, and times was real hard. I had an older brother, James, some eight years my senior, and my own twin sister, Katie May. My name's Hank, after my Daddy, who left us to go fight the Rebels in the first year of that great conflagration. But Daddy, he never did come back. Brother James, who was always spiteful toward me because I got our Daddy's name instead of him followed on after him to the war in two years' time, and we was damn glad to see his backside. James was a mean, nasty piece of work with a vicious tongue like a viper in his mouth and a broad backhand to go right along with it. So when James wandered home one day, not more than a year later, with a bad limp and a walking crutch and missing the right eye, the homecoming was not so sweet as some men got when they made it back into their bosom of the loved ones. James wasn't home more'n a day, and he was up to his old tricks, terrorizing Katie May and me, who weren't no more than nine years old at the time. He even treated Ma to a balled-up fist if she didn't have a supper on the table when it woke from a mean drunk and thought by rights it should be waiting for him. The only time we felt safe around here was when he's passed out in a heap in Ma's bed, leaving her to sleep by the fire in a pile of blankets. Now in those days, Ma managed to keep us fed by taking in mending and the like from ladies such as Mayor Hadley's wife and Fra Dosselmeyer, maker's wife, and a few others all lived in town. We had a vegetable patch and some chickens and managed to keep body and soul together and that was about it. So when Christmas rolled into Madison Bay each year, it was pretty much like any other year. Maybe a small chicken and a few potatoes for supper, but that was about it. Wasn't even any trees on our spread for us to drag a pine branch in as a token of the season, but we was used to it, so it was okay, I suppose. Can't miss what you never really had. One day, weren't more than a day or two before Christmas, the year Katie Mae and I turned ten years old, I was out feeding the chickens. James had mercifully gone into town, no doubt, for more hooch, though I never knew how he managed to pay for it. I looked up and saw the dust rising on the road and my heart sank. I figured it was James riding back bringing the end of our peace and quiet. Looking back, it's a sad thing when all a ten-year-old kid has to pray for us in peace and quiet in a day's release from the back end of his jaw the sound of his mother, sister, sobbing. But as the dust cleared, I saw it was a fine buggy and a black horse trotting pretty as you please in front of it. It was a toy maker from in town, a Herr Dosselmeyer, a German feller, and I took this hair and fro business to mean something like Mr. and Mrs. in his own speak. And Mr. he surely was, tall and thin, fine-boned, and straight as a sapling with a great head of yellow hair like his missus. He was, as Ma said, a real gentleman in his old-fashioned frock coat and cape against the cold and his shiny black top hat. I figured he was bringing sweets and whatnot that his missus made every year and passed around to every house in the vicinity. I ran inside and told Ma and she came out with a smile and a wave and how-do as the toy maker reined his filly up in front of the house and jumped out. He handed the basket of sweets to Ma and she thanked him with a curtsy. He even had a wreath for our front door. Then he pulled two red velvet sacks from his buggy and told me and Katie Mae to get on back inside mind her manners as he had business to talk over with Ma. So we went inside and hid in the loft while the two of them disappeared into the kitchen and... Ma poured the toy maker some coffee. We was up there listening hard as we could. I heard Ma gasp and then start laughing and oohing and aahing like she does when she sees some pretty new frock in the window in town. Katie Mae and me would have chewed off her own paws to see what those two was doing. But oh no, no, I couldn't and there's just no way I could pay you for such fine work, Ma was saying and he was hushing her with some words I couldn't make out through that accent of his, but... They sounded kindly, so I just stayed put. Before long, they called us down, and we crept into the living room where the toy maker Ma was staring at two wooden dolls, the likes of which I'd never seen in all my years, few though they were. About a foot and a half tall, each was dressed in fine red velvet robes trimmed with fur and pointed red fur-lined hoods thrown back. There's a gentleman doll and a lady doll. Katie may squealed next to me and jumped up and down, but... I just stood there dumbfounded. The two of them had long chains with black bells thrown over their shoulders and around their waists and carried gnarled walking sticks. But it was the curled ram horns poking out of their real hair and the cloven hooves and shaggy legs on which they stood that were the greatest wonder, and I figured this was some mystery of the German folk, the likes of which we'd never heard tell, us being born and raised right up here in territory soil and all. I didn't rightly really know what to make of it. Ma was beaming like a kid and hugged herself, and the toy maker was nodding. Go on, children, pick them up. They're yours. The lady for you, Katie May. The other one is yours, Hank, the kindly old man said. I saw Ma had tears in her eyes, and she gave Herr Dosselmeier a hug and stood on her tiptoes to kiss his wrinkled old cheek. And Katie Mae and I grabbed up the two dolls and climbed back up into the loft to play, the sound of bells on the dolls' finely sewn red dark costumes, filling the house with a joy we'd not felt since before Daddy went off to fight the Rebs. In the loft, we looked those dolls over real good. Mine was as wizened and wrinkled as the toy maker himself, with a hooked nose and long-pointed beard that curled around like vines grown out of his chin. Katie Mae's doll had long yellow braids made of real hair that hung down to her feet and a look on her face that made you wonder just what she knew that she wasn't telling nobody. I can't remember us being so happy and this being the day before the day before Christmas and all. All that day and night, my sister and I played with those dolls and made up all manner of story for them. There's a king and his queen of Germany, we said. From Herr Docile Miles Old Country or St. Nick's very own helpers or this or that or some other damn thing and before long Ma was calling us to supper and then in a whirl we were back up to play with those dolls and all too quickly we were tucked into bed with strange dolls watching over us from table in a room. It was a mercy that James never came home that night so we got a good night's sleep peaceful sleep filled with all sorts of wondrous dreams I'd never have the words nor wherewithal to describe to anybody except maybe Katie May. Then around noon the next day, James rode home in his cups in a black rage demanding some supper even though it was long past or far too early depending on which day he was talking about. And Here it was Christmas Eve and he was acting up like usual. James was warming his hands by the fire when he caught sight of us, just standing there scared as usual when he was around, clutching the two fur and velvet-clad dolls like they'd give us some kind of protection. What's this? James roared and sputtered half laughing. (laughs) Give me that! He yelled, grabbing the doll from my arms and throwing it at the fireplace where it broke into a bunch of pieces and fell into the hearth. What, are you some kind of sissy? He bellowed. And as to be expected, backhanded me and sent me flying. Ma pleaded with him to let me be, but he slapped her and sent her crying from the room. You bitch, you raising my brother, Pa's own son to be a damn sissy boy playing with dolls? I got a notion to get gone from here and take this little shit with me, teach him how to be a man on the road, make Pa proud of him, finally, even if it's only from the promised land. Katie Mae screamed at him. I hate you! I hate you! Why didn't you die with the revs and let Daddy come back? And she ran over him and kicked him a good one in the shins. He howled and grabbed a doll and flung it into the fire, where it immediately caught a fire on account of the clothes it was wearing and all that yellow hair. And you, you little brat, you too old to be playing with dolls. You should be helping Mom in the kitchen, and taking in men of your own. He was bellowing like a bull giant as he stood over us where I lay and. Katie May lay next to me where he'd flung her. I was just plain beat. I couldn't even cry no more. What little happiness I had laying a broken heap on the hearth while Katie May's roared in the fireplace and quickly burned up all to ash. By then I was hoping James would just crash his big old fist on my head and end it all. But then I blinked as something caught my eye. Something damn peculiar. Behind James, there's a shadow growing. The image of something huge dancing in the firelight and raising slow and coming into view. It finally stood up to its height, and I cried out in disbelief. My doll wasn't broken like I thought. In fact, it was standing up big as a full grown man and damn near half again as tall. And it was alive. I heard the bells tinkling and the sound of big hooves clomping on the wooden floor coming slowly toward us. The thing's horns damn near scraped against the ceiling beams. Then he reached around and dragged his bit-regged sack off his back and opened it up. Well, James just stood there gaping and pissing himself as the creature towered over him and bent down nose to nose with him. The creature's lips turned up in a snarl and he grinned through his whiskers. And then howled showing a mouthful of long, sharp teeth like a wolf's. Then the doll man stood up again and let loose a laugh that almost split the rafters. Naughty Naughty Naughty! The creature bellowed, poking James with a long, bony finger as he tried to scramble for the door. But the creature had him. He grabbed James by the foot and tossed him like a rag doll toward the fireplace. James screamed in pain and I heard the sound of bones breaking his big old shaggy cloven hoof came down right in the middle of James's back and flattened him Then he reached down and took hold of James by his head like he's grabbing for a ripe peach. He snapped James' body out straight once, twice, three times and I heard all the bones in his neck snap like an old chicken's and then he fell limp and dangling dead in the creature's grip. As he stuffed James Liveless body into his sack and tied it up with a cord, the creature was humming to himself, and I didn't even want to know what he was singing. I still didn't dare to breathe either, awed I was by the proceedings unfolding before me, though the creature paid no never mind to me and Katie May. Then the horned one went over to the fireplace and grabbed up a stick and started digging around in the fire. "'Mumbling some hair docile how German-speak-sounding words. "'I couldn't make out. Katie Mae stood up and wiped the tears from her eyes "'as the creature reached into the fire "'and helped the lady-doll step out of the flames. "'Now alive and whole and damn near as tall as her feller, "'blonde braids dropping clear to the floor "'and neither singed nor soot upon her. "'My Krampus!' "'She cried as he bowed deeply and kissed her hand. The two turned to go, but then the man-creature turned back to me and put his fingers to his lips. Bending down from its great height, he pressed something hard into my hands and then passed his own big hand over my eyes. Then, I I knew no more. I woke the next morning to the smell of eggs and ham frying on the griddle and coffee on the fire. In my hand was a black bell, not one of them little ones like on the dolls, no, this one was... Damn near big as my fist. I was in the loft and Katie Mae was sleeping at my side. I wiped my eyes and looked around, shocked to see the two dolls, wooden again and whole and standing a foot and a half tall side by side on the table. You kids best get down here. We got a fine breakfast thanks to the basket Frau Dosimile sent us. You two get on down here now. She yelled and almost sounded happy. I woke up Katie Mae and we rushed over and picked up the dolls, not even caring how it all came to be. Ma yelled up from the kitchen again that there was no sign of James anywhere and that he must have gotten a turn of the conscience and ridden out before dawn. She said she almost hoped we'd seen the last of him. I knew we had seen the last of him, and I didn't regret a damn bit of it. That was a long while ago, years back. I'm a grown man now, and I got boys and a couple girls of my own. We live in Ma's old place in Madison Bear, and mine are damn good kids. But I do know they always cast a cautious watchful eye at that wooden doll with the curling horns and cloven hooves, where he stands watch from the mantle over the fireplace all year round. Every Christmas is part of our traditions, I bring out that old black bell and take that doll down off the mantle, then I proceed to tell my kids of the Story of their Uncle James. It's a cautionary tale, I tell them. They know what I mean. Yes, indeed, it's the strangest thing. My boys and their fair sister have never been nothing but the nicest, most helpful, and loving kids you could ever ask for. Katie May says the same about her brood of girls across town. Every now and then, when I hear some loud noise or angry voices raised from another room, I hear one of the older boys mention Uncle James they all settle right back down. Like I said, you couldn't ask for better kids than mine. Everyone else around these parts has either moved on or died out long ago. Only old man Dosselmeyer and his missus are still in town from days gone by. Still making toys and filling his shop these days with as many grown-ups who will come to talk as with kids who come to shop in search of hopes and dreams. The Christmas Eve's yet to come. Thank you for listening to the Wicked Library's 2017 Chris Massacre episode. The stories you've heard were I Want to Eat Your Eyes by Jesse J. Saxon, Oh Christmas Tree by Pippa Bailey, The Yolak Turnin by Kelly Perkins, and The Year Christmas Came to Madison Bear by Aaron Vleck. For more information, please check the show notes. Additional segments were written by Daniel Foytek. The music was composed by Nico Vites of We Talk of Dreams. The voice of Holly and the ghost of Yet to Come was performed by Cindy Lohman. The voice of Victoria Bigglesworth-Hayes was performed by Amber Collins. The voice of the librarian was performed by Nelson W. Piles. That's me. Audio engineering and production was done by Daniel Foytek. The narration was performed by Nelson W. Piles. It is produced and normally hosted by Daniel Foytek. Nelson W. Piles, that's me, is the creator, executive producer, and occasional narrator. I'd like to thank Dan for letting me drive this episode. It's a hell of a Christmas gift, my friend. Thank you. From all of us at the Wicked Library, thank you for listening. We'll be back in 2018 for Season 8. For more information, please visit us at wickedlibrary.com. And until next time, go ahead, leave the lights on. This is Nelson W. Piles.
1: Society Thirteen Podcast Network Redefining Podcasts Society 13 dot I like to listen.